Hello and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, the podcast that celebrates the art of conversation with creative people. Today, a man of mystery and music, truly a guy who leads a double life as a world-class musician and violinist and award-winning author. He's Gerald Elias. Jerry lives out in Utah now and we've become good friends, but he played for many, many years with the Boston Symphony Orchestra and has been associate concertmaster of the Utah Symphony. But he's also a terrific mystery writer. A series of novels featuring Daniel Jacobus as the hero solving crimes is a lot of fun. And we'll be talking about his latest book, the political thriller, The Beethoven Sequence, as we move through our conversation today. So without any further ado, I welcome a talented novelist, an incredible musician, and a really nice guy. Jerry Elias, let's go on Mike. Well, we build this program as a conversation with creative people. I've got a twofer today. A guy who's not only musically inclined and very successful in that field, but one of my favorite new writers. I shouldn't say new, Jerry, because you've been doing this for a while, but I'm, I'm a new fan. So welcome to the podcast. Nice to see you. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with the music. You have a connection to Boston. You played with the BSO, the Boston Symphony. Yeah, I was in... Uh... The Boston Symphony from 1975 through 88 as a full-time member. I got into the orchestra right out of college, fortunately. What was great is that even after I left the Boston Symphony to become associate concertmaster of the Utah Symphony, I still came back to play with the orchestra at Tanglewood every summer uh, and go on tours with them. So I've been able to maintain the relationship with them, which has been uh, great for me for, to say, for sure. That is wonderful. It's such an amazing organization. Did you work then under Seiji Ozawa for many years? Yes. In fact, I was one of the first people he hired after he became music mm. director. He became music director in 74, and I, I joined in, in 75. So you know, I was there for, for his prime years with the orchestra. How does that happen? I mean, I know there's an audition process and so forth, but do, do you recall the, the situation with that back then? Oh, yes. I thought you would. <laughs> it was grueling. I mean, they're all <laughs> grueling. Um, in fact, I auditioned uh, four different times for the Boston Symphony before I was accepted. You know, every time there's a, a vacancy, there is an literally an army of uh, musicians to try to fill that position. And the the number of rounds really is is dependent upon uh, you know how close the competition is. Uh, usually, there are at least uh, three rounds, sometimes mm. even more than that. Now you're in Utah as we speak, and mm -hmm. we'll talk about what it's like to live in that beautiful state. But uh, I understand, uh, obviously, we'll talk about your work with Utah Symphony, but I understand Keith Lockhart, who's the Boston Pops conductor, has spent some time out in Utah. Am I right about that? Yeah. I mean, he was music director here for about a dozen years before Keith, uh, Joseph Silverstein, was the music director here, um, mm -hmm. who, of course, is the you know the renowned concertmaster of the Boston Symphony for so many years. So there's that Boston Utah connection more than just Mitt Romney then, right? <laughs> yes, quite a bit more than that. Um, yeah, um, in fact, uh, Joe Silverstein was my teacher, violin teacher at Yale, and of course my uh, colleague in the Boston Symphony for a number of years. And then he came out here um, in 1983, I believe, and um, I came to Utah in 1988. Uh, so, you know, we, it was great to maintain that connection. And uh, uh, we were, you know, quite uh, close for a long time until he passed away, what, three, four years ago. 
Let me ask you, Jerry, I've always wanted to pose this question to somebody who's done it, a concert master. I love the title. It just sounds so regal. But uh, outside of the role we see on stage when one tunes the orchestra before the maestro arrives, uh, what what's involved? What what do you need to do to become one, and what do you need to think about as you do concert master work? Well, there are a great deal of responsibilities that go along with being the concert master. Um, when you go to a concert, you'll notice that um, all the string players, you know, thirty-five to forty string players, uh, all their arms are going in the same direction <laughs> with their bows, or presumably going in the same direction. Right. Um, that determination is is made by the essentially by the concert master who who puts the the what are called bowings into the the parts that everyone needs to follow. So that's mm. that's a major um, focus of his attention. Also, he's sort of the liaison uh, the intermediary between the conductor and the musicians you know very often conductors come from different parts of the world and they're not always easy to understand um and it's it's really up to the concertmaster sometimes to interpret to interpret what the conductor wants to the rest of the orchestra to put it in practical terms and off the stage the the concertmaster is often just the public face of the musicians and, and has a very public um, role in kind of creating the a sense of what the orchestra is all about. Mm. Before we talk about the fiction and the latest book, all of which ties in with music to a certain extent, uh, you've written some nonfiction, including a book about your touring. Uh, I have some friends who have also written books about their life in the orchestra, but what is this book all about? Tell us what it's well, the name of the book is Symphonies and Scorpions, and I can explain why in a, in a minute. But basically, it's about how music can be an instrument of citizen diplomacy around the world. And uh, the book is set against the backdrop of two uh, history-making tours that uh, the Boston Symphony made, both of which I participated in. Uh, to China and Asia. One was back in 1979 when the Boston Symphony was the first orchestra after the end of the Cultural Revolution, the first Western orchestra to visit China. In fact, we were on the first 747 that ever landed in China <laughs> back in 1979. I, I remember it very, very well because I've actually worked with the BSO and part of their marketing plan over the last many decades. And I remember how big a deal that was. It was a huge deal. Huge yeah. deal. Absolutely. Very groundbreaking. What was the other event? Involved? Well, the other event was the next tour to China, which didn't happen until 2014. There were a couple of aborted attempts to have tours to China in between those two. Uh, but uh, I was one of the very few members of the orchestra who was in both of those tours 35 years apart. Um, so the book wow. is about what life is like in a symphony orchestra and how that's changed over those years, and also how the world has changed over those years, how the, our relationship uh, to China and Asia and the rest of the world has uh, has transformed since then. Well, I think what you're writing about, and we'll we'll talk about this when we get to the fiction too, is this universal language that is put big quotes around it, classical music. It has an ability to bring people together, unlike any other musical art form, in my opinion, maybe jazz mm -hmm. to a certain extent, but classical music is 
certainly recognizable on on every four corners of the globe and maybe beyond into the stratosphere. <laughs> what is it about the music? And you've done it as a career uh, your entire life. Do you think that that speaks to people on such a universal level? You know, Jordan, that is a question which I have been trying to answer for my 40 years as a professional musician. To me, it still remains a mystery. There is something, I believe, inherent in the vibrations, those complex sets of vibrations that composers wrote down as black dots on pieces of paper three, four hundred years ago that do something physically, chemically, emotionally uh, to people that sit and listen to it, who absorb those vibrations. It really is a mystery. And I think maybe that's that's what's great about it is that no one can really put their finger on it, what it is. But I mean, it's undeniable that people in all corners of the world, as you say, have embraced this kind of music to such an extent. Um, you know, there are people in, in this country now who are pessimistic about the future of classical music. And perhaps, you know, the, it's, it's experiencing some challenges in the U.S. now, though I would even disagree with that, considering the number of community orchestras and semi-professional youth orchestras, college orchestras. I mean, it, it's it's quite phenomenal in my opinion. Uh, from my perspective. But when you see what's happened around the world, how Asia has embraced mm -hmm. classical music, China and Japan and Korea and, and, and elsewhere. And um, I've, I've spent some time in South America and Peru and Ecuador um, over the years. And, you know, their passion for classical music is at least as great as it is here, even though they don't have the resources we have. Not too many people know that there was a conservatory of classical European music in Peru in the late 1500s, mm. <laughs> established by the, mm. the Spanish um, explorers and uh, colonizers there. So, I mean, it's not as if we're bringing something new to South America. I mean, they've they've had it for more centuries than we have. I think you're onto something when you talk about the vibration, the actual physical reaction that we have. When I'm listening to a, a beautiful symphony or, say, adagio for strings or something of that nature, I am mentally, emotionally, spiritually moved, but I also feel it in my gut. I can feel a physical reaction. Yeah. And, and you see that when you're at an event, a symphony event, among the audience and even among some of the players as they're doing it. It's really remarkable. Let's focus a little bit now on fiction because I love the fact that, you know, you write what you know, which is always a good thing. <laughs> and Jerry has written a series of novels. I love the, the one that I read most recently, which was the last, quote unquote, last in the series. I hope it doesn't end. The most recent. The most recent. And we're talking about a character, Daniel, is it Jacobus or Jacobus? Jacobus. 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 Daniel Jacobus, who I equate to cross between Dr. House and Sherlock <laughs> Holmes and a few other characters. He's very ornery, he's hysterical, and he's idiosyncratic to a great extent. Let's talk about that character in the books that you've devised first. Sure. Where does he come from? Well, he comes from, like most of the characters in my books, he's a... Uh, an amalgamation of, of several different people, plus uh, a large dose of my own imagination. Um, 
I wanted to create a character who was uh, a combination of, of someone who is very perceptive, very analytical, highly intelligent, but also um, on the caustic side uh, to give him a, a little edge. And uh, I remember at one book event that I gave so, several years ago, <clears throat> I, uh, I was introduced, well, I, I introduced the character of Daniel Jacobus as an over-the-hill, curmudgeonly blind violin teacher. And the manager of the bookstore said, so Jerry, does that mean your book is autobiographical? <laughs> and Even I, though you're looking and, right at and him. And before I could answer, he corrected himself saying, oh, of course not. You're not blind. Um, well, <laughs> I've got to tell you that the, the fact that you made the character who he is and the fact that he is blind fe features so prominently in every story I know because how does someone figure something out without a particular sense and I love the idea that he's using other senses as blind people do yeah well you asked me uh, the source of the character uh, of Jacobus and one of the sources is a very dear friend of mine who I've known since uh, junior high school uh, her name is Myra Ross, and she lives in the Northampton area. Uh, violinist. We played in youth orchestras together, and during her teenage years, she began to lose her sight mm. until she became totally blind uh, when she was in her 20s. And um, she didn't miss a beat. She continued to play the violin, amazingly enough, in orchestras. She's learned string quartets by memory learning her part. Um, she had a life as a, um, a guidance counselor in a high school for decades before she retired. She raised a family. Um, she is s someone who I admire more than just about anyone else I know uh, because she has shown how being a person with what we call a disability can yes. not only survive but, but thrive. And one of the things that we know about people who um, have lost one of their senses is that they often excel with their other senses. Mm. And that's, that's true of Jacobus. His ability to analyze by, by his sense of touch and especially hearing, of right, course, right. Um, as a musician, uh, makes his analytical ability hyper acute i love him i think he's just great and i love the humor which is very caustic and and sharp and biting and i'm looking at this guy on the screen folks the sweetest you're the sweetest guy in all of our emails and missives and everything and you're writing this hilarious cut up who just loves to knock people down he seems to have a method to his madness which is also cool about a character like that Everything seems to work out because he's playing people just right. Yeah, and he's brutally honest, yes. uh, which kind of rubs people the wrong way. Uh, but he, he can't help himself, and he, he gets dragged into these mysteries, kicking and screaming, but uh, ends up being uh, surviving at coming but, but, out the other end. And I promise we're going to get to the new book. But all of the mysteries uh, involve you know his life in music. And what I found myself doing, and I bet this is the case with your fans, I found myself downloading some of the music that you write about 
because <laughs> I wanted to follow along and understand well, what why is he criticizing this string quartet or so whatever it does. And it was fascinating to just play along with the with the book. Well, one of the challenges in writing the books is to make sure number one that people who are musicians who do know the music um, really feel that I'm writing on a level that is accurate and true to the profession. On the other hand. There are a lot of readers out there who know nothing about classical music, but I want the book to be equally entertaining for them uh, so that they don't have, you know, are scratching their heads about what is this all about. So that was that's one of the challenges. But regardless of whether you like the books or not, I really hope you'll listen to the music because the, <laughs> yes. the, the music is in, in all fabulous. the books is, is really spectacular. Well, Daniel is is hopefully going to be returning before you know it. I know there's a, an issue. When you write a series like that, you don't know from book one how many you're going to do or how many it's going to take at that point, do you? Right. When I, when I first wrote Devil's Trill, the first book in the series, I had no expectation. Well, I had little expectation of that ever getting published, first of all. But when it did, I was offered a two-book deal, then two more books. Um, and then right now, it's a six-book series. And for those um, series, Daniel Jacobus uh, lovers, uh, I'm happy to report that there are going to be two more on the way in the foreseeable future. Well. Well, we are excited about that, Jerry. Very excited indeed. Now let's focus on what is brand new as we record this podcast. It's called The Beethoven Sequence. And here in uh, one of the most contested election years in memory, it's a fictional story about what? (laughs) Well, it's about a mentally unstable amateur musician who somehow ends up being president of the United States. Um, The book started out years ago as just an idea. Uh, I think most people are familiar with the Suzuki method of <clears throat> violin playing or piano playing, or, or at least have, have heard of that. Um, and I had this, uh, I have a lot of friends who are Suzuki musicians, either teachers or students, even some former students of mine have become Suzuki teachers. And I had this thought about <clears throat> what if we had a Suzuki program on steroids and it was run by someone who became a cult-like figure. Um, And what would happen if an organization that is so well-structured with so many dedicated followers became politicized? And that idea gradually morphed into this idea of the Beethoven sequence the uh, main character, whose name is Leighton Stoltz, is this machine shop worker who has a passion for music, but has a dead end life. Um, and he becomes obsessed with the music of Beethoven's uh, liberation repertoire, whether it's the Egmont Overture or the Ninth Symphony or Eroica Symphony. He just becomes obsessed and all he wants to do is conduct it. And he is He's rejected by Juilliard. He applies there, but he has no experience as a musician. So he forms this student group in order to have an orchestra to conduct. And little by little, his method, which he calls the Beethoven sequence, catches on um, little by little, but then like wildfire. 
and he becomes this uh, guru that everyone kind of looks to. And um, as I suggested, it be, his his organization, which is just full of these uh, rabid zealots, becomes politicized, and um, he is uh, uh, he ascends to the presidency. Um, along the way, though, he creates some enemies. Anyone who strays from his method, he considers an enemy, um, even those who at one point were his disciples. So I won't go into too much of the plot because right, I don't want to give right, it away. Right. But I remind myself of a famous historical figure who was rejected from uh, art school, one Adolf Hitler, and formed his own party and took off from there. I mean, there are a lot of correlations between history and reality and stuff like this, right? There is. Yes, you can point to all kinds of parallels, either in history or contemporary society, if, if you'd like. The difference is with, with my character here, Leighton Stoltz, unlike some others uh, who are just kind of uh, outgoing and, um, you know, alpha wolf, this guy starts out with a great deal of humility um, and uh, very modestly, and he has a hard time adjusting to society. So I, I think the, the, the personality traits are different from those who we would seek to find parallels with. However, I think there are there is some resonance to what's going on in our country now with um, the book, and I have to say it's it's fortuitous that uh, the book has come out uh, mm. before our next election. Maybe uh, it'll change the course of history. Did I, did I mention to you when we were setting this up, I might have, an old movie with James Coburn, The President's Analyst. Did you ever see that I've movie? heard of that. I've never seen it. Though. Okay. I, I'm best to mention it to somebody else when I was discussing you. And uh, it, it's a 1967 satire spoof. And these are fascinating, satirical and fictional looks at uh, at pop culture and real culture. And that's why I think it'll, the book will be so successful. But I love the tie-in to Beethoven. Um, there was recently something in the quote-unquote new media about Beethoven being either passe or uh, the product of white supremacy or some nonsense like that. I don't know if you heard about that. I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, I hadn't, but, you know, this is Beethoven's 250th anniversary of his birth, so it's a big year for Beethoven. So he's getting a lot of attention, good and bad. And, well, I, th I think one of the striking things about Beethoven's music, other than its inherent greatness, is so much of it has to do with liberation Mm. And with freedom, and um, that's that's what my main character Leighton Stoltz really grabbed onto because his life had been so repressed, and so he kind of viewed his his own liberation through the music of of Beethoven, um, and and you know that that notion of what music was about that Beethoven created was really unknown until then. Certainly, you know, there, there's no music greater than that of Bach or, or Mozart. Mozart happens to be my favorite composer. Um, but that idea that music can express this uh, level of heroism and of triumph over oppression, you know, that, that really was mm. unique. And um, that, that's what uh, this book is, is all about, how, how that 
that notion of, of heroism and liberty can be perverted and transformed into something evil. There's something else I wanted to touch on, and that's uh, related to the last Daniel Jacobus book, and that had to do with the teaching academy, the institution where it all takes place, the, uh, mm-hmm. the school of music. And, and you were just talking about the regimented approach to keeping people in line. I know in music, particularly classical music, it is a grind. I mean, it is very difficult, as you say, to get through the audition process, but also just to deal with the constant criticism by any teacher. Is that something that you've toyed with uh, in terms, I don't know if you teach, but if you've been around others trying to mentor them, are you conscious of the fact that a lot of people are a little more sensitive and might be harmed by that constant drumbeat of criticism? Well, first of all, yes, I have taught for for many, many years. And how one deals with a student is, you know, cr- kind of the critical element. You know, some students are very receptive to certain kind of criticism. Others are not. You have to know your student. I think what's important is to really convey a sense of what we're working toward together mm. to accomplish. My feeling that as a teacher, my goal is to transfer everything I've learned about music and how wonderful and beautiful and great it is to the next generation so that there's no loss um, of quality as time goes on. And I think if I can convey that in a positive way, uh, I can be critical in terms of how to get that student to improve. Um, I remember when I first joined the Boston Symphony, our principal guest conductor was Sir Colin Davis. And at the intermission of one rehearsal, this is when my, I was 22 years old. I was sitting on stage working on my part during the intermission and Colin Davis walked straight towards me and I thought, Oh my God, what have I done wrong now? <laughs> He's going to fire me. He comes up to me, introduces himself, uh, welcomes me to the orchestra, and says something that has stuck with me for all these years, which is, he said, I, I can't remember the exact words, but it was something like, it's so important that what you do is right, because if you don't do it right, no one else will. And, you know, I thought about that for so long, about how we each need to take responsibility for doing things the right way as best we can. Um, and so that's, that, that's kind of the message I think needs to be conveyed to, to students, that, yes, it's fun to play music, um, it's challenging to play music. It's extremely, playing the violin is probably the most unnatural thing that's ever been devised by, <laughs> by human beings. Um, but it's so important we all try to do it right. Um, that message, I think, has become somewhat corrupted over the years um, by teachers and conservatories and, and professional musicians. Uh, you mentioned my book, um, Spring Break, that uh, Daniel Jacobus book, because one of the issues in that book uh, is the issue of sexual misconduct on college campuses mm. and conservatories. And sadly, um, that is a very, very serious issue. And um, 
it's one which has has made this whole notion of the student teacher relationship very very fragile and um I've had former students that I've sent to other teachers and and fortunately most of them have come back um unscathed but you know they have studied with teachers who have um not done the profession well let me say yeah so, well I appreciate your take on all that and I also appreciate the fact that you bring up issues like that in a book and make making the audience aware of things in a in, a, in an entertainment venue because it's important to get those points across. There's one more thing that uh, I thought I'd toss your way. As a very fine musician uh, and somebody who's worked with charts and scores his entire life, in writing a mystery, which, by the way, these are intricate books, the Jacoba series particularly, is it akin to um, charting a, a score for a symphony or an orchestra? I mean, are you pretty much set on where it's going to end, that big crescendo, that big uh, retard at the end? Or is it a stream of consciousness with you? I think there are a lot of similarities. I think when uh, I write a piece of music or um, a book, I start out with a certain structure in mind, with certain ideas, whether they're musical ideas or literary ideas, um, and spend a good time plotting those things out. you know, in, in in this day and age, in terms of music, there is no single kind of vocabulary. There are so many different ways of writing music and listening to music, uh, you know, whether it's acoustical instruments or computerized instruments. I mean, it, just about anything can work um, if the composer really has a, a structured idea um, and somehow conveys something of those ideas to the listener. In writing a book, you not only have to have the ideas, you have to have every word. <laughs> you know, It all has to connect. Everything has to be just right. Uh, so I think that's an additional challenge. One of the advantages of being a writer, though, is I've got editors. I've got people who can say, Jerry, this really sucks. You've got to change this. I mean, <laughs> yes. your chronology is off. And I can spend time rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Composers pretty much have it on their own. Sometimes I wish a composer like Mahler or Bruckner would have had an editor um, to say, you know, great ideas, but it doesn't need to be an hour and a half long. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Mahler especially. <laughs> yeah. So. Wow. That's interesting. I, I had a sneaking suspicion that there was a direct frontal cortex link between the the writing that you do and the <clears throat> music that you've both performed and uh, and worked on. For sure. There's there's one other difference that I think is, is really important, which is that when I've read the book, the reader, who is the audience, has direct access to it. If I write a composition, I need to find the musicians to perform it for the audience. So there's that middle right. level, which is so Well, you're crucial. the maestro of these novels. There's no question. You're not only that, but you're the maestro. You're the strings. You're every section. You're <laughs> yeah. even the, the doorman and who hands out the programs. You're everything. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, you know, that that's a, a good analogy because these days the authors also are the ones who have to market and publicize their work. It's not like the old days when the when the publisher did all of that for you. So 
you know, it's a, it's a juggling act. I'm getting used to it. You're doing a fine job with not only that, but also uh, the creative output. I really appreciate it. Now, you've got a whole bunch of different web connections and web addresses. What's the best one for people to key in on all this, including the new book, The Beethoven Sequence? My website is called Gerald Elias Man of Mystery dot wordpress dot com and it's all one word Gerald Elias Man of Mystery I love it I love it Gerald Elias Man of Mystery uh, also known as Jerry to his friends and uh, I consider you a friend now it's been so Absolutely. nice getting to know you and we didn't even mention and we will now how we met why don't you tell the audience here briefly a little bit about that book that came out not too long ago that was inspired if you will by the times we live in sure well you know when this pandemic first started and everyone was locked down, um, everyone had to do this uh, sudden readjustment of their lives. And, you know, I was communicating with people who were kind of at a loss of what to do. And fortunately, I had a whole bunch of writing projects going on. So, and I, and that was kind of distracting me from the, the day-to-day um, stresses. So I thought, well, what if I suggest to people that we all write a story about what's happening in their lives, whether it's fiction or nonfiction or whatever, and we put it together in an anthology. And I thought, well, what's going to get people to do that? And came up with the idea of, well, I'll put together this anthology, I'll edit it, we'll get it out there as soon as we can, and whatever money we raise from royalties, we will donate to the Red Cross. With that idea, I just sent that out on social media and to friends. And within a couple of weeks, I had uh, more than two dozen stories from people around the world, from both aspiring authors and established authors, many of whom are actually in the Boston area. And I edited this book. It was my first editing mm. uh, experience of other people's work. And we got the book out. It's called Getting Through Tales of Corona and Community. And it's wonderful because there are essays, there's fiction, nonfiction. There's some lovely love letters from fr friends of mine in Italy who wrote letters to their little children about when, in, when they're adults to reflect upon what it was like mm -hmm. to have lived through this uh, pandemic. Mm -hmm. So all kinds of, of stories. I've got my own little dystopian short story in right. it. So uh, it's a great project and we met and we helped promote that locally. And I really am very happy to have uh, helped out in well, a small and way. That's how we met. And I'm grateful that we did meet. And I'm really grateful that you were so positive, enthusiastic about that project. Indeed. And all the other projects, the latest book, The Beethoven Sequence. Do check out the Daniel Jacobus series by Gerald Elias. And uh, Jerry, I, I wish you the best. You're uh, half a country away, a whole country away, but we're, we're right next door thanks to the current technology. Great to meet you and chat with you and share some of your thoughts. It's been my pleasure and a shout out to my Boston Symphony colleagues. Can't wait to see them next summer at Tanglewood. I do highly recommend you check out Gerald Elias, manofmystery.wordpress.com. Read all about his various books, including the new one, The Beethoven Sequence. Thank you, as always, for listening and downloading the podcast. Also, if you get a chance to rate us and give us a review, we'd appreciate that very, very much. My thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, Ken Carberry of Chart Productions, and again to all of you for listening. Until next time, this is Jordan, as always, saying be well so you can do good. Take care.